ponder of something great. My lungs will fill and then deflate. They fill with fire, exhale desire. I know it's dire my time today. I have these thoughts so often I ought to replace that slot with what I once bought because somebody stole my car radio and now I just embrace the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 142 of Embrace the Void, where the void gets data-driven. I am your host, Aaron, and I am mercifully done with grading for the semester. (sighs) This week, we're discussing a huge survey on non-believing community, uh, recently released by the American Atheists. I'm very excited to chat about this, so let's get quanting. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week is Allison Gill, Vice President for Legal and Policy at American Atheists. Allison, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Here's looking at you. <laughs> and here's looking back. So um, you all reached out because you've done uh, some very interesting work recently on understanding uh, the secular community, broadly speaking. And so I want to talk with you about that. Before we get there uh, and talk about your survey, I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of you personally and how you got involved with uh, the atheist movement, um, whether you come from a religious background, for example. Sure. Well, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, it was not a very religious background. My mother was a uh, generic Protestant. My father was a uh, lapsed Catholic. And so my father actually never went to church at all. I, I, he never talked about it, but I'm pretty sure he was an atheist. My my mother um, sort of had like a church of the week. So I've been to a lot of different types of, um, you know, different types of churches like like Methodists and mm. uh, Protestant, uh, Presbyterian, et cetera. Do you have a but favorite? But I never really was a believer in any of it. I sort of went to humor her and I stopped going when I was an early teenager. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's not something I've ever really bought into. So I've been an atheist since I was in my teens Um, and mostly in fairly liberal areas. So I haven't faced a lot of the religious oppression that a lot of people have, Mm -hmm. I guess. But at the same time, there have been some incidents. One comes to mind when I was in high school. I can tell you about that if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I was, I still am, I guess, a giant gamer. I'm into Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I went to a magnet school. Um, my county had like this special magnet school for like uh, military, you know, and uh, naval mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. And so I went there, which means it was like an hour and a half commute from my hometown to get there every day. And it means I didn't have a lot of local friends. My friends were all from all over the county and not like in my actual town, which... Mm-hmm was you know hard and at one point my home high school was starting a D club and so i was like oh this is a great chance for me to go i'm really into this i can make lots of friends locally mm-hmm. and unfortunately it was sort of crushed by the uh 
what is it? The Federation of Christian Athletes, the FCA. Oh, no. The group at the school protested it so much because they could not bear to have this, you know, devil-worshipping group in their school. So they mm -hmm. actually ended up not being able to have the, uh, the club. So I never got to go. It was really unfortunate. Um, that's, but that just shows you know, like this busybody is imposing their religion on other people and how it actually hurt me. That's funny that you and I have a very similar experience of that kind of passive rudeness. I had a friend whose mother was a very fundamentalist when we were growing up and he was he got he ended up being an artist and does like beautiful art um and he, we were like looking at like D, D books at one point or something or like well i think it was world of darkness actually i think it was like vampire oh, the masquerade yeah. or well, something <laughs> and um she was like oh no we don't let him uh, uh read those spiritual books i think was the term that she used for it um but boy it was it's it's a super weird feeling to realize that someone's like, oh no, you you think this is real, and like you're concerned about the reality behind these fictional characters, right? Um, yeah, so so I, I bring up, and I think it's good that you bring up the uh, experiences that we we've had in these very situations because um, the main reason I wanted to have you on was to talk about this massive survey that y'all just did of the, I guess, folks who identify as non-religious in various kinds of ways. Um, we'll talk about some of the voidy results that you got from that survey, but do you want to sort of explain a little broadly, like what was the overall size of the survey? Like what was the methods that you were using and like what basic questions were you trying to get answers for? Sure. Well, I originally come from the LGBTQ movement. I've mm -hmm. worked in that movement for more than 10 years before getting involved with the secular movement. And one of the first things I noticed upon coming to the secular movement was that our community completely lacks data about itself. Hmm. Um, like the LGBT community was previously, um, there, there's no federal surveys that ask any questions about religion. So hmm. we're not able to capture data on things like healthcare, education, just basic things about employment, you know, that we have for various other types of groups, like based on race or national origin or age or gender. And so it was a real problem. And like I said, the LGBT community went through something similar and they spent, you know, decades trying to get onto federal surveys so that they can have better data about their community. And I saw this as an immediate problem because how do you do effective advocacy? How do you walk into a lawmaker's office and explain why you need something if you can't actually show the extent of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you can't talk mm -hmm. about why people care, who it affects, how it affects them. The answer is you, you can't. I mean, you can tell stories, which is great, but as they say, uh, data, uh, data is not the plural of anecdotes, right? You, it's, it's, stories are not enough. I mean, it's sort, have... it sort of is. It's the plural of enough anecdotes, right? Because this well, is a, a survey of individuals telling you their stories, right? In some ways, in some ways, but it's not, you know, anecdotes aren't scientific. I, I take your point that we have to, we have to get to a, a set of large numbers before we can, we can infer much statistically from it. Right. And so we, you know, we saw that seeing this need, I've, I've been working to sort of bring forth this um, data collection project. I mean, we realize it, the government's probably never going to collect data about our, our population. And so mm -hmm. we really have to do it ourselves. And so we did the U.S. Uh, secular survey back in October through November of last year. Um, we did, our goal was to get five to 10,000 respondents. And within the first eight hours, we actually ended up with uh, more than 10,000. And we kept the survey, originally we we're going to keep it open for about a month. Mm -hmm. But we got such a huge response. We actually closed it after about two weeks because we had 34,000 people take the survey, which is amazing. Wow. But did you know you have to pay per respondent? <laughs> 
<laughs> no. So, so like the the only reason that you didn't get better numbers is because you couldn't afford to pay for for more people's information. Well, we could have kept it over open a couple more weeks, but it would have been mm-hmm. vastly more expensive. It was already right. more expensive than we had planned by, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So we we wow. kind of uh, had to do what we could do. But I mean, I'm glad we got so many people. The more people we can get, the better data we have. And frankly, I want to hear from the stories from as many people in our community as we can. I just want to pause and just note the the financial kind of gateway there that like, you know, if, if we are as a as a community interested in knowing things based on being able to assess large quantities of information, which we should be doing at this point, the idea that y'all as a private, you know, like out of the goodness of your hearts have to shell out tens and thousands and however many, you know, thousands of dollars it is to try to acquire that information in this kind of way, like, Obviously, you, there's there's resources that have to be put towards it, and that makes perfect sense. But I just think it's important to note that um, in the ideal world, we often think, oh, well, if people really cared enough, they'd just go out and get the information. But like that involves large quantities of money, it turns out. That's right. And, you know, we have to we hired a research firm to help with this, too. It's not good mm-hmm. enough to just us to put together a survey. We need to make sure it's actually scientific if the data is useful. And so we hired a really fantastic research firm out of New York who does this sort of thing for different groups. Um, and I'm very, very pleased with the outcomes. Yeah. But, so, what, what were sort of the? So, you, you were asking just a bunch of broad questions about like on uh, about employment and things like that. Um, sure. We were trying to find out things about the community more broadly. Like, um, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's some several really good population surveys about you know religious groups in the country by Pew Research Center and PRRI, but mm-hmm. they don't do like a deeper drill down into non-religious people. Instead, they sort of group non-religious people with this bigger category called unaffili- uh, religiously unaffiliated people or nuns. And so um, that kind of masks and obscures our community, unfortunately. And, and, for, and really, the unaffiliated group includes not just non-religious people, but people that actively are religious. People, I think 60% mm. of that group says they believe in some sort of deity or higher being. And about 30% say religion is very important to them. How do they end up in the group then? Well, because they don't pick any other category, so they're really oh, affiliated. Okay. So they're so, so the like, non-denominationalists get coupled in with us, like the like true true non-denominationalists. Yeah, like spiritualists, people that have mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. a lot of new ways stuff, you know, all, all sorts mm-hmm. of strange things, uh, beliefs that you can't otherwise categorize get lumped into nuns or none of the above, basically. Okay. And, so how do y'all um, then? Yeah, how do y'all then subdivide the non-believers in a way that you feel like is more valuable and fine-grained? Yeah, it's a great question. So the way we did it on this survey is we only asked for people to participate that actively identify as non-religious and with one or more non-religious labels, such as atheist, humanist, skeptic, freethinker, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how we sort of subdivided it out. How did now, the uh, community break down into those groups, roughly speaking? Yeah, so that's actually in the report. It's one of the things we okay. looked at. Yeah. But I should say first that, you know, uh, the broader category of religious and affiliated people, there's a lot of media about how that's growing rapidly and it's about a quarter of the population which is fantastic but you know when we talk about just people that are non-religious we're talking about something closer to about nine percent of the population which is still mm-hmm. larger than most people think but it's not not as high as uh, the bigger number so right. there are breakdowns in here as far as how people identified interestingly about 95 percent of people identified to a smaller or lesser extent as an atheist that was the highest category Hmm. And the primary religious, non-religious identity we saw was also atheist of about 57%. The second one after that was humanist at about 14%. Is that surprising to you? I feel like, 
if I was to think about which of those things has better branding right now, I would think that humanism would be a more comfortable brand for people than the hard A atheist. It's not surprising to me. I mm-hmm. feel like atheist is just such a better better known term than humanist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think it makes sense. I, I mean, a, a significant portion of people identified as humanist to at least some extent. It was close to, I'm just looking at the graph here, was close to 85, 86%, which is quite high. It's just not mm-hmm. as, it's just not as well known a term. Okay, that makes sense. So so you broke them down these ways, you asked sort of broad broad questions and various uh uh just, you know, information gathering kind of stuff. Before we sort of dive into some of the like abuse side of things that y'all found, I'm curious broadly speaking, were there any stats in this report that really surprised you that like jumped out is not what you expected to be the, the answer to that part of the set of questions yes i i think there were a few different things um one of them was the extremely high rate of voting and and political involvement hmm. which is fantastic because there's a uh-huh. stereotype out there that atheists don't vote and that's actually false i think it becomes because these larger population surveys sort of group atheists in with the broader category as as, as i was saying mm-hmm. and therefore that broader group does not have the best voting percentage. However, if we look at just the non-religious people, our numbers were extremely high. I think 95% were registered to vote and about, I think it was 87% uh, voted in the last election and usually or always vote, which is much higher than the general population. Um, I think in the general population it was about 55% for 2016. Do you reckon it's, it's just still hard for us to turn that into, I mean, if you, even if you have that information in hand, it's difficult to turn it into political influence because as you were saying a second ago right there's only nine percent of the populations that we're talking about here so like it might be an easy group to discount in close situations i i don't think so i think nine percent is huge Um, frankly it can really turn a big difference the the thing is we're not organized yet Mm -hmm. um we have national groups working on this but you know they're tiny in comparison to a lot of other uh, segments of our population and you know, a lot of us are nonprofits, so we don't really do election work. But there, there's some work being done around voting registration. It, it's a matter of organization, and uh, mm-hmm. we're not quite there. But I do think that 9% of the population with a voting rate like that, as long as and we can get our message out there consistently, we'd be a real political force to be reckoned with. Okay, so let's talk about some of the things that we want. We might want to see be uh, impacted with that political force. So the main, the first, this first report that y'all have put out. My, my my impression is that you're going to put out further reports based on the same data set, but this this one was centered specifically. It seemed around the prevalent kinds of discrimination and stigmatization that you found within the atheist community. Um, is that is that correct? That that was sort of the thrust of what you were going for with this first piece of information? Yes. Well, it was a broad overview, yes, but mm-hmm. also that was a, a major portion of the survey, so that came across very strongly in the report as well. And... Um, yeah. Do you want to tell some, to just to give a sense of some of the like basic cases that we're talking about? Well, like, are these things of just people being, you know, jerks to other people because they're atheists? Or are you thinking about things like how much goes beyond that to things that should in principle be against the law? Sure. Well, you know, we at American Atheists, and I think a lot of the other secular groups that take on litigation, we hear complaints from people all the time about discrimination in school about employment discrimination, like people being fired because of their non-religious beliefs, about people mm-hmm. being denied like services from government entities or like funded organizations because of their beliefs or because they won't 
pray or whatever. And, you know, we, I don't think we've been able to get that information out there more broadly. So people, I think, understand that there's a problem, but we've not been able to sort of articulate it um, as far as what discrimination looks like against non-religious people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we this report is helping us to basically take those stories and show them what they mean more broadly. And so when we talk about, we looked at both discrimination and also stigmatization, and we also looked at concealment, how often people sort of hide the fact that they're non-religious. Um, what surprised me was that concealment was so high. It's incredibly high for a population. Mm-hmm. And we saw also rampant discrimination and stigmatization. So discrimination, the broadest categories, well, I should say negative incidents people experienced, the broadest categories were in social media and family. And you can't really call that discrimination because it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, but we saw, you know, discrimination also in the military, uh, high rates in education and employment and various other areas. About a third of the people surveyed said that they faced education um, discrimination based on their identity, which is very high. Is that in the form of like a teacher being, you know, like inappropriate towards them because they know that they are an atheist and a student? Exactly. That could be. I mean, the, the problem with a big survey like this is we can't drill down mm-hmm. into those specifics. All we can do is, you know, take the bigger report and then ask for stories. And so one thing that's interesting about the survey is we had two qualitative questions at the end. And about a third of people actually took the time to answer their stories about discrimination, which is just fantastic. If you know anything about surveys, usually that's about 5%. And people were just so interested in finally getting their voices heard and, you know, being able to tell their story. that we just had huge numbers. We have about 10,000 of those. That's yeah, a little I, bit much for us to go through very quickly. <laughs> no, so. I, um, I totally recommend that folks read the document that you all have put out because it has not just all the, the great information and data from the survey, but it has a lot of like clips from those stories on the sides in a nicely designed way. And I think it really it, it's a beautiful pairing of the qualitative and the quantitative. So I I appreciate that you include that that a little bit of flavor text in there along with the stats. Um, so yeah, you mentioned, I, I was going to ask about particular professions. And so it sounds like the military is one that's a particular issue. Education is one. Um, it sounded like there was also a common issue with regard to things like voting and jury duty. How does this play in, in, in relation to things like, um, voting and, and being picked for juries? Sure. Well, I mean, there's actually our, our president, Nick Fish had an issue with this last year. He had, uh, I think it was, um, grand jury duty. So it was several weeks where we had to be there three days a week um, mm-hmm. for for jury duty, which was pretty onerous, honestly. This was in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And the form that they made them swear in actually had religious language in it. Um, so they were asked to basically swear or sign on this religious form every day. And it didn't mm. actually have like an opt out, like you could say, I affirm or whatever. So he complained about it to the um, to the court and they actually ended up fixing it, which is fantastic. But that's hmm. just to give you one basic idea how people can be excluded. In some states to take off office, there's still oaths that have religious language in them. Um, you know, a lot of times people consider it, um, you know, people don't want to go into churches for things like having to vote. And you know, sometimes there's like religious iconography there when they have to, you know, that's the only place that they can vote. So they're forced to go there if they want to exercise their rights. And those mm-hmm. are just a few examples. Is it also on the other side of like 
in people's decision making for voting do you have any sense was that part of the survey at all for understanding you know what i guess because you're asking atheists you'd assume that they're going to be in favor of voting for atheists my understanding was broadly speaking there's still a large stigma against uh voting for atheists i didn't know if that came through at all in this no we didn't we didn't ask about specifically would you vote for an atheist um mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't that's not one of the questions we asked i mean there's sure. there's research on that that other organizations do which is pretty good um but we, we don't have that Hmm. Um, so we have these kinds of discrimination issues, and then you also found some amount of physical assault. Um, something relating to—I don't know if you would. I think we would argue would potentially qualify as hate crimes. I guess it depends on uh, the the status of atheists as um, a protected class, right, or something like that. It, it would. It, Potentially, um, atheists are a protected class because they fall under religion, which is included in right. the hate crimes law. That's so, if thought. they are uh, if they are based on religion, then it, then it very well might be hate crimes. But you know, those were fairly small numbers, so I don't usually focus on those. Instead, okay. I, I think what's really significant is the level of family rejection we saw, mm-hmm. um, which was incredibly high as well. So, this is people who are either under twenty five now or who were under 25 or thinking retrospectively back to when they were under 25 and they were basically out as atheists with their parents mm-hmm. about um, more than a third said that they were somewhat, their families are somewhat or very unsupportive of their non-religious identity. And if we look at the effects that has on people, we found that participants with very unsupportive parents were 71.2% more likely than those with supportive parents to screen positive for depression and hmm. to score about 15% higher on loneliness. So we can see the real repercussions of these sorts of family rejection behaviors. Yeah, that that was some of the sort of more depressing, try to not go red in the eyes when reading uh, like the idea yeah. that so many individuals are being pushed away. And do you have a sense from you know what, what you have been able to read from the qualitative side of things, whether... So what what amount of that is being driven by this sort of persistent idea that atheists are less moral or um, in some way, um, you know, stop being good people or something like that? Well, I can't talk about that specifically, but we did Mm -hmm. ask about stigma. And I think Mm -hmm. those two things you just mentioned are examples of stigma. So we asked Mm -hmm. several questions about stigma, things like... um, you know, statements like people have asked me to join them for th- in thanking God for a fortunate event, or uh, people have talked about me behind my back because I'm secular or non-religious, or mm-hmm. people have told me that I'm not a good person because I am secular or non-religious. So we asked how often they encounter those sorts of situations. And from that, we were able to create a scale that basically measures stigma for that person. And, you know, that was a really interesting because then we were able to make assessments about where st- what stigma looks like in different places. And I actually think this leads to one of the most important findings for the report mm-hmm. was just the incredible level of difference in discrimination and stigma in the very religious areas versus not very religious areas. Yeah. Yeah, there was, and you especially singled out the South, which I found interesting as someone who grew up in Virginia. It certainly confirms my biases, um, but I'm also, I sort of want to dive into this a bit. What is it that you all found in the South that really seems to make it, so is it just that just the concentration of rural religious communities in the South is particularly high, and so there's just higher likelihoods of abuse there or is it increased severity of the treatment or both? Sure. Uh, So 
we ask people to assess this. We ask people about the community community they live in currently. Mm -hmm. So in order to assess community religiosity, we ask people about the community that they live in and what it's like, how religious it is between not at all religious, a little bit religious, somewhat religious or very religious. And then we looked at the percentage of people who said their community was very religious by state and sort of broke that out so we could see what states look like in various categories. And we saw that states in the South and the Mountain West were much, much higher in religiosity than states like uh, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and New England. Th mm -hmm. Those New England and those states had about 3.2 to 10% um, of people saying their communities are very religious. And just to give you an idea, places like Alabama, Utah, Idaho, Utah, uh, Mississippi, was mm -hmm. about 50% to 80% of people saying their communities were very religious. So that's how we were able to make that assessment. And then we mm -hmm. looked at how stigma breaks down using the scale I talked about in those different places. And we saw a clear correlation. The more religious a place is, the, the higher the level of stigma. Um, and so there's a really clear breakdown of what each state looks like in terms of both religiosity and stigma. And even more remarkable, we found that when it comes to discrimination, there's just a multifold increase in the level of discrimination between not religious areas and very religious areas. Mm -hmm. um, like for example, in education, it was about 2.5 times higher. In employment, it was about three times higher. So that's really significant. In education, about four in 10 people in very religious areas said they had experienced some sort of uh, education discrimination as opposed to about 15 to 20% in less religious areas. So you end up with a kind of atheist no-go zones in a lot of places where it's just going to be hellish to live there if you are openly of this persuasion. Frankly, yes. And, you know, we also saw higher rates of concealment in those places for, probably sure. for that reason. Right. That would that would certainly make a lot of sense. Um, and I'm, I'm stuck on the fact that to me, I mean, in my experience, I feel like a lot of this uh, stigmatization and, and discrimination is justified by this idea of atheists as being somehow uh, less good people, this pervasive myth of the immoral atheist. Now, I mean, if I want to play theist's advocate for a second here, and I'm just curious what your response would be if, you know, somebody were pushing back and they wanted to, you know, if you were saying, look, I think this is, you know, either, uh, either discrimination or stigmatization, however you want to put that, right? If they wanted to push back and say, well, look, it just seems that there are, you know, some groups that have higher IQs, for example, and there are some groups that have other differences in features. And one of the things that we think is factually true is that uh, atheists tend to be less ethical. And until someone sort of disproves that or something with sufficient evidence, I guess, and you could, I guess, immediately sort of sort of try to start, start to present that evidence um but couldn't they at least say we're not discriminating we're just believe we believe in this fact about atheists and are acting in our view rationally based on that fact yeah i, I think you'd have to prove that fact to some extent i i can't mm -hmm. imagine any evidence that would somehow allow people to prove that fact it's an assumption it's not a fact right and so, so uh frankly I mean, if we look at rates of people in prison and their beliefs, if we look at crime rates, there's just zero evidence that non-religious people are somehow more prone to crime than anyone else um, anywhere in the mm -hmm. country. I guess y'all didn't ask about criminal activity against those people, right? So I, I, I don't know. I, I just don't think that argument can very easily hold much water. 
Did y'all did y'all ask at all about criminal history in this survey? No, we didn't. Okay. Um just just curious, right? If we could come up with a data set that showed that like uh people who self-identify in this way are specifically likely less likely to um be likely to engage in activity like that. We did ask about education level, mm-hmm. which is sort of you know, it has a correlation to things like income and uh criminal activity. And, you know, I think the population overall was probably slightly more, uh, the, their sample, I mean, was probably more educated than the general population. We mm-hmm. had about a, thir- a third complete a bachelor's degree, for example. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So another piece that it seemed like y'all of the puzzle that y'all looked at was uh, the intersection of being non-religious and being members of minority communities. Do you mm-hmm. want to talk about sort of what y'all found in terms of substantial differences um, or was it mostly comparable between white non-believers and um, non-believers of color? Sure. Now we, we did some work in this area, but I think it's mostly a sampling at this stage. We really mm-hmm. want to publish additional reports that delves into this area more, more carefully and with more data for various different, you know, types of non-religious people like sub-communities. Um, especially, I think we want to do the first one on non-religious youth because we saw such interesting numbers here. Mm-hmm. We found that non-religious young people were more than twice as likely to screen positive for depression compared to other participants and were about five times as likely to be uh, physically assaulted uh, because of their non-religious identity. So that's a really mm-hmm. significant increase. And there's a lot more there to explore in terms of things like family rejection and outcomes for that. So uh, I think there's more research needs to be done. I mean, you know, more reports need to be done on our research, as I should say. Yeah, I'd be we curious also- specifically to find out if it's how much of that is peer-to-peer violence versus uh, in-family violence. Sure. That's a great question. And we, you know, this is not something we can't get into those kind of specifics in this type of survey. Sure. Um, this is just things like that require further work. But, you know, the, the good thing is this research facilitates that sort of further work. Now that we know mm-hmm. where the problems are, mm-hmm. researchers can more interested in this field can now take this and run with it and build their own theories and really advance the, you know, the cause for data for our community. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we also looked at service members and veterans and found you know, we looked at both discrimination, which was around 50%, had experienced some negative activity in the military, mm-hmm. and also how well the chaplain service is serving non-religious people, which is not well. Um, <laughs> Surprisingly. We also looked at ex-Muslims. They have significantly different and higher rates than other types of non-religious people, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go to my stats here. Uh, yeah. Ex-Muslims were about twice as likely to suffer negative interactions with police and court systems, for example. Um, we also saw that Black participants were about half as likely to have supportive parents and about three times as likely to be physically assaulted because of their beliefs. Hmm. And, and we also looked at uh, Latino communities as well. So there's definitely different types of breakouts in here. But like I said, we want to do more research on this area. And was it was the feeling that the issue there is the more that the religion is sort of deeply, deeply tied to the particular cultural community that um, it was there was an increased rate of of escalation of conflict around these identities? Yeah, I think there is a cultural component that differs by those communities. I, I definitely think that's important. And several of the the qualitative stories that people provided sort of spelled that out. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think I feel comfortable sort of laying out sure, why no. this is so at this stage. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that's a, that's a clue in the right direction. 
Yeah, and and just tantalizing to to think about what comes what comes next in terms of trying to figure out these things because I think it's it's great that y'all are laying this fra- you know this this groundwork in such a stable way so that you can then get more into the weeds on that kind of thing. Um, I'm curious since we were talking about the stigmatizing, are you curious about? if there is stigmatization going in the other way as well? Like, are you curious to find out more about whether atheists are likely to, I mean, obviously like the larger community is not, or like society is not as likely to discriminate. It seems like against um, religious individuals, at least especially religious individuals who are part of the, the broader, broadly accepted, you know, class categories of religion. Um, But I'm curious if you also are interested in digging into whether, you know, it's true that in general atheists think that uh, religious people are less likely to be moral or likely to be less intelligent or less educated or stuff like that. We didn't dig into that here, and mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of value for it, honestly. I mean, you know, there's value in what we did here because of its advocacy purpose and its community building purpose, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's not something I guess that I would particularly interested in saying those those exact things. I guess I would just be curious as a as a disprover for things like the angry atheist myth, the idea that atheists are chomping at the bit to um, discriminate and, and stigmatize um, religious people could be maybe challenged some if you could present data that shows that by and large atheists don't think particularly negative thoughts about religious people or aren't particularly engaged in activities um, that actually harm religious people in any uh, any of the ways that you were pointing out that the religious intolerance tends to harm atheists in these communities? Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, that's an interesting perspective. And I think we'd have to think about that if we did further research. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the good thing about doing the, making this, doing this the first time. If mm-hmm. we come back to it and do another one in five years, we'll have a baseline to work from and think about additional things we can include. But yeah, one thing absolutely. you sort of brought to mind when you uh, mentioned that was we did look at policy priorities for secular people. We asked people what their top three policy priorities mm-hmm. for secular organizations. And as you were saying, there's a stereotype that, you know, atheists are out to get religious people and they want to ban crosses everywhere. <laughs> um, we actually found that opposing religious displays on public property was the lowest rated priority with about 13% of people saying that was important. So hmm. it was really interesting. The highest three were um, maintaining secular public schools, which was higher mm. than 50%, mm-hmm. opposing religious exemptions that allow for discrimination and access to abortion and contraception. Those so those are, are the... That's a good top know, three. That's a really yes, good top three. Absolutely. And they allow, they're both, they're also good for, because they allow us to build bridges with other groups and achieve mutual goals, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we have relationships with, you know, women's rights groups, for example, to mm-hmm. fight for abortion access and contraception access and you know, public education groups to make sure that all the money is given away to private religious schools to vouchers. Mm-hmm. So those are just a couple examples. And do you feel like you've been getting sort of positive responses when you've been using this material and outreach so far with those kinds of communities? So far, yes. I mean, it just mm-hmm. came out a few days ago. Sure, so. obviously. <laughs> right. So we're still working on that aspect of it. But so far, uh, we've received, a, I put this out through most of our coalitions, and a lot of them were very, very interested with the results. Yeah, and I'm curious a little bit to hear what kind of reactions you've been getting from either the media or, I mean, it, it seems a little too early for government officials, but I know you've been doing a, a big press junket. So um, do you feel like um, this is getting generally sort of positive p- 
press? Do you feel like you're getting much pushback on on what you're presenting, given that you're presenting a view that I think suggests that, um, uh, you know, the majority religious population is in many ways still being acting inappropriately towards the minority atheist population? Yeah, so we haven't, we've gotten great press pickup so far. There's been a lot of interest and we haven't heard much pushback yet. But to be frank, we sent it to a big list of conservative media groups yesterday. So we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But so far, there has not been that much pushback at all. Uh, It's been pretty positive received everywhere that we sent it. Mm -hmm. No, no 24 hour turnaround from the religious uh, communities condemning the uh, survey or something like that. Not yet. Let's give it a couple of days and see what happens next week. Okay, I mean, we'll have to have you all back on a little while down the line and um, see what the what the fallout has been from those sorts of things. Um, you know, in some ways, if that happens, it's not a bad thing because no, of course our not. goal is to get this information out there as broadly as possible. And if this, the more this is in people's conscious, you know, mind, mm-hmm. the like, you know, lawmakers, media folks, if they know these numbers are out there, they're more likely to refer to them and use them and think about our community. Um, Mm -hmm. when they do so because you know the problem is without data your community is basically invisible but by having this stuff in the media whenever they start to write about non-religious people they'll see oh well we can say this stat or that stat about them it gives something concrete for you know uh, media people to write about Mm -hmm. would you go on tucker carlson if he invited you that's a tough question. I, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sorry. sure if I would. I mean, he's just such a hate monger, and I don't know if it's worth validating that. But yeah, is there anyone on Fox News who you would talk to, where you would feel okay about doing it? Uh, I don't know. I think I'd have to take it on a case by case basis. And you know, the question is: Is it like, will you have a capacity when you go on Fox News to actually defend it, or are you just there to be silent mm-hmm. while they ridicule you? Right. 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 Uh, but they, like they let you to- token atheist out. yeah yeah and sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not so i think that's what we have to really assess yeah and it is hard to tell and i mean i i imagine i think the reality is the stuff that you're the outreach that you're doing to more receptive communities as well as to sort of more neutral communities is going to be a lot more impactful than than trying to get to the folks who are still listening to fox news on a regular basis right right um yeah, so let me true. Let me get back in the weeds here a little bit on some of the things in in the study that I think might be interesting to um, folks who are interested in the culture wars, broadly speaking. Um, y'all reference in your list of uh, forms of um, inappropriate behavior, uh, things like microaggressions. Mm-hmm. And um, microaggressions are sort of somewhat of a controversial concept within the the culture wars, anti-justice, anti-social justice warrior folks are often critical of um, discussions of microaggressions as being, you know, sort of uh, taking, sort of acting extremely in response to stuff that shouldn't actually be that important or, or matter. Um, I'm curious if you would say, if you could say a little bit about um, why you feel like it's valuable to include those things in a survey like this and, and why you think it's a, a meaningful um, form of abuse or harm. Sure. Well, I mean, that's how we sort of composed our stigma scale. So, I mean, what microaggressions are is just an individual unit of a broader range of stigma. So, hmm. you know, the way society treats people, you know, there's a lot of individual tiny incidents that add up together to be uh, like a compel a narrative that this group of people is not good enough. They're not, you know, normal. 
they're not part of our society, they're other. And so the way we look at that, the only way to, to really assess it is to break it down into individual components and figure out how often it happens and sort of put it together in a scale. So that's, you know, that's why we have to ask about microaggressions because they're individual units of stigmatization. So we're not talking about things that are active, like, oh, they mm -hmm. fired me because I'm non-religious. That, that, that's discrimination. That's another category. We're talking about, like, I was not invited to, you know, Thanksgiving dinner because I wouldn't say the prayer, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, you'll survive. It's not illegal, right? But it is right. damaging to someone. And getting that sort of negative feedback constantly, it has a psychological impact on people and on our community more broadly. And we can actually show that with the numbers here. People, where there's mm -hmm. higher rates of stigmatization, there's higher rates of concealment, there's higher rates of loneliness, and higher rates of depression. So this, it, this is it effectively negging, right? Like this is just religion's version of trying to neg you back into religion. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and culture more broadly. Uh, mm -hmm. so yes, that's why we have to measure it. And okay. I don't know, the idea that it has no effect on people, or uh -huh. you should just ignore it, that ignores human nature. That's just mm -hmm. not realistic. I mean, being constantly informed by your society you live in that you're not equal to everyone else as an impact, whether you want it to or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. I just wanted to, I think it's important to get those positions out on the board because I think that some folks might look at a study like this, see the word microaggression and check right out. And I don't I don't want to have that happen. So I think it's valuable to, uh, for, for you to explain the, the reasoning behind including that kind of um, language that might be a trigger for some folks. Um, so Ironic, the, the word microaggression is a trigger, but yes, I know, I, agree. I know, I, you know, it all just falls together, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> so one other thing that you mentioned a little bit while, while a while back that I wanted to dive in a little bit more is the very high levels of concealment. Um, and I'm curious if you think that that's sort of a composite of, is it just, you know, people just trying to avoid the high levels of abuse in those um, religious communities? Is it also like latent anxiety amongst atheists about their own beliefs, especially atheists who have walked away from a faith? Um, is there, is it, is it that there is just no repercussions for these forms of discrimination and so um in those you know lawless world right it's easier to just hide it it's all of the above yeah. i mean frankly it's it's all of the above and you know there are repercussions um they're just socialized and that mm -hmm. it's it's worse for the entire uh non-religious community if we're invisible because mm -hmm. then you know people seem like more of an outlier than they are when they are more vocal about their identity so that's a good point you know mm -hmm. it and we also show through the report that higher levels of concealment result in higher levels of loneliness and depression for the individuals who are, you know, are, are concealing. So there's also, there is personal consequences to it. Um, but, so, but at the same time, people have to weigh, you know, mm -hmm. in their own lives, the risk for coming out as non-religious non and the risk to their family and their school and their children and employment. So it's a mm -hmm. difficult situation. The interesting thing I, I've been thinking about with this is, you know, I'm 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 trans, I'm LGBT, so I'm more used <laughs> just to thinking, thinking in the that same context. things. Yeah. Uh -huh. What's that? No, I was just thinking along the same lines. But go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so they have this um, tradition in the LGBT movement of coming out. They have a coming out day of celebrating being out and you know being visible with your identity. And that same sort of phenomenon is does not really exist in non-religious communities. I mean, there are very vocal non-religious people, of course. Mm -hmm, and I think mm -hmm. around, you know, um, when, you know, there was this big push towards new atheism, there was more so people coming out, which was, you know, mm -hmm. I think we've sort of 
moved away from that a little bit. Uh, but you know, I think that's part of why we're seeing such high concealment is there's not this tradition of of being out as much um, as there is in LGBT communities, for example. And it's so easy to hide one's beliefs to get along with family. And, right. Uh, we can and we others. can all pass in that sense, right? Right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I think. So, so you all are, we are in a sense then in this particular spectrum sort of lagging behind things like the LGB community in terms of addressing the question of, you know, how do we get people to make their, their nature more known? And I, and I would be really curious to see like comparative stats on how many LGBTQ people are concealing within these very same communities. And is it like very close, like the Venn diagram, basically just a tiny circle with a tiny sliver of non-overlap there or um what does that look like because i just I imagine would too. i haven't right. seen those stats yet but i'd be it's one of the things i keep meaning to to do more mm-hmm. research on and just haven't had a chance but i am interested in seeing what the numbers look like for concealment for lgbtq folks and the numbers we i'm sorry the questions we used mm-hmm. to sort of construct our concealment scale were basically based on lgbt outness in the same sort of way mm-hmm. um, we looked at both disclosure and concealment but since mm-hmm. they're inverses, we only really re- reported on concealment. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see when we can, you know, what data is available on that topic. Yeah, I'd also love to see it correlated to concealment of people who've had abortions, because I bet you're mm-hmm. looking at uh, also very similar circles in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's um, interesting. That's interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm just, I mean, having an abortion does, is an effect, you know, it affects somebody. Obviously, it's something people keep to themselves. Mm-hmm. But it's also not an ongoing identity. It's not a salient mm-hmm. identity in the same way that being LGBT or being non-religious can be. I can imagine sure. that. Yeah, it's not. A, it's certainly not a. Um, well, I mean, there is a sense in which some people like part of their identity is yes, I had an abortion, and that was a mm-hmm. choice that I made, and that's you know uh, an important piece of um, my life. But I could also just imagine that there's a, an ongoing stigmatization in their minds where they're having to keep a secret in a community where people are regularly saying about you know those baby killers, etc. Um, that that True. could be. It's right also a healthcare of... matter, so people might mm-hmm. consider it differently than a part of their core identity as well. Mm, that's true. Yeah, I just think there's there's so much complexity that there's that I think it's great that y'all are um, working your way in into these things in a um, in a functional step by step fashion here. So you've already talked some about the some of the policies that y'all were um, interested in from. Uh, the government. But another thing that I thought was really valuable that I wanted to highlight in this, especially given that we've just had um, Kevin Bowling and um, Neil Polzin from um, uh, Secular Student Alliance and CampQuest.org and stuff, was that y'all seem to find so, you know a silver lining around atheist communities. Um, do you want to talk some about uh, what, what y'all found with regard to um, how atheist communities can counteract some of the uh, experiences or the effects that we've been talking about? Yeah, sure. So we uh, asked about membership in national atheist organizations, and we also asked folks if they participate in local secular organizations. We found one in five people is mm-hmm. active in one or more local secular organizations, which is just fantastic and a good high number. We also asked um, whether people are have participated in or interested in participating in um, basically local activities such as social activities, mm-hmm. uh, volunteer work, advocacy work with their local groups. And we found you know significant numbers of people that either had done that or were very interested in doing that. And we looked at you know the effects of this uh, on people's 
psychological outcomes, how, mm-hmm. how depressed they were, how lonely they were. We found that participating in these ways, membership in national organizations, these secular activities and local group membership can drastically reduce, uh, correlates to drastic reduction in levels of depression. So for the highest one was membership in national or- organization reduced uh, the rate of depression by about a third, which is pretty significant. Wow. So it's really about building community and having those ties, you know, of course, mm-hmm. uh, those sorts of social relationships has a positive impact on people. As you were saying, you were looking at it on both the local and the national. Did you find anything about sort of the effects of, of being hooked into a more national conversation of, of a broader atheist community? Sure. We, we looked at each of the, uh, we basically um, looked at the numbers for membership in national organization, participating mm-hmm. at least one secular activity, and local group membership. And we found that the, the highest, the, the most drastic reduction was with membership in national organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the least drastic was local group membership. But, you know, they were not that different. They were all protective factors. Um, uh-huh. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yeah, no, I would have intuitively thought it would have gone in the other direction at the local connection. Quite honest, feeling. I would have too, but yeah. did not. <laughs> that's that's cool. Uh, I like when math is like, nope, it's the other way. Sorry. Um, so did you, in the qualitative side, get much of a sense of like which particular large communities a lot of folks were feeling keyed into? Do you mean uh, at the national level? Yeah, at the national level. Sure. We, we asked folks which of the larger secular groups people were, were connected with. Uh, for American atheists, it was about 10 percent of the mm-hmm. population. So, I, I mean, of the of the participants. But I think that's um, that's that's good because it helps show that this is not like an American atheist membership study. It goes much, much broad, mm-hmm. broadly, more broadly. Than uh-huh. that. Yeah. And <laughs> that's uh, funny. about 17 or 18 percent were were members of FFRF. Uh, about mm-hmm. 8.6 were with the American Humanist Association, and there were a couple others. But just to give you an idea, most folks were not members in the national organization. Okay. Um, were there any other, like, sort of silver lining kinds of things that you might think would be valuable for people? Or if not, maybe some other things that uh, you found were particularly helpful for coping with the, um, the stigmatization and discrimination that we've talked about? One thing that we do at American Atheists every year, we publish a report called the State of the Secular States Report, which looks at every state and the how the laws protect religious equality and the separation of religion and government. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we sort of rate the different states. They're in three categories. Um, there's one we call strong protections for religious equality, one we call basic separation of religion and government, and one we call religious exemptions that undermine equality. Mm-hmm. And so... We looked at how that correlated with the level of stigma in each state, and we found that the states with stronger protections have much lower stigma overall than mm-hmm. states with a lot of religious exemptions that undermine equality. Um, and so there's a very clear showing. And, you know, we, we can't say one causes the other. It might just be that, you know, where there's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. more inequality in the laws, it also happens to be the place where that are, you know, there's a more stigmatization of non-religious people. But we did find this sort of correlation. So, yeah. And so we would, we would then at least want to try to see. So, I, I mean, now that you've planted 
this flag in the ground, right? We would want to see 10 years down the line or five years down the line, are these numbers getting better or worse for these communities? And has the instituting of new policies resulted in things getting better or resulted in pushback from the community or something like that? Exactly. Yes. It would be helpful to see that over a period of time. And there's great researchers who do that sort of work. I'm familiar with one, for example, who focuses on that sort of how do policies affect LGBT people. Mm -hmm. Um, And similar sorts of work could be done for our community. Uh, It's it's always hard to say, like, how one particular policy affects people in that way. Sure. Um, A lot of it has to do also when policies get a lot of public attention. That affects communities as well because it's part of the public discourse. So, for example, uh-huh. when there were used to be for LGBT people, when there used to be marriage equality fights in different states, that would have a drastic impact on how people were perceived and double stigma. Um, so the question is, are any of our issues, do any of them you know, impact our community to the same level as that? And mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the answer is yet. In your uh, gut, right, speaking from your math gut, do you feel like things are getting better overall for atheists at the moment? Are we trending? I mean, it's hard to put a trend after just one point, but like if you had to put money on how things are going to look five years from now, where do you feel like your your priors end up? Well, I have two different answers to this. Um, <laughs> I feel like population-wise, things mm-hmm. are looking very good. The level of the population is increasing we're organizing, we're becoming more aware of each other. You know, I'm hoping this data will help us um, realize what our needs are as a community. So those are all positive. However, the state of the law is getting significantly worse, significantly worse. Um, There's a number of Supreme Hmm. Court cases that could come down that are all very negative for things that we care about in terms of state separation. Mm -hmm. Um, From this court, you think? This seems like a really, right? (laughs) What's that? Yeah, no, it's just a nightmare that we're stuck in forever now because we decided to let Donald Trump be president. Yeah, and things are really bad and they're getting worse. And, um, you know, I'm not sure we can save the Establishment Clause. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure it's even exists at this stage. Ugh, that's that's demoralizing. But, you know, I, I think we have to fight for it. And mm-hmm. as these things come down, I think we have to let that galvanize us to push forward and demand change. Mm-hmm. And also... I think the more these things happen that undermine, like people that are not affiliated with the atheist movement at all still don't like their money to go to some random church in our country. Mm -hmm. It's a a foundational Mm -hmm. principle of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like once people start hearing about what's being allowed um, more and more, and it becomes part of public attention, there'll be an increasing level of pushback. At least that's my hope. Yeah, I think that's the best you can do. And I think you all do a great job at it. Um, I'm curious, uh, I think we're getting towards the end here before we get to our lightning round, though. Are there, is there like, a uh, if you could find the answer to anything, right, setting aside how hard it is to tease out information, is there any burning question in the back of your mind at the end of the day, after all the polls, you'd like to be able to say, we know for a fact that X about atheists and the atheist community? I'd like to know how things change over time. And that's mm-hmm. hard because we'd have to do this repeatedly. But Mm -hmm. uh, we can't really, this is more of a snapshot than a sort of time-based lapse. So I I can't really say what leads to what. Um, We can only show what the results are. So I'd like to be able to, if we had infinite time and money, I'd like to be able to do that to show, okay, where does this result come from? Where does it lead to? Uh, It's more Mm -hmm. cleanly than we can now. Fair enough. So hopefully you all will continue to get supported. If anybody knows anybody who wants to support some uh, atheist um, data gathering, I think 
it's it's absurd that we don't have this as part of uh, the way that our culture works already. So I really appreciate that y'all are putting in the uh, time and effort and money. Well, thank so, you. I appreciate that. And I feel like this is going to be really groundbreaking for our movement. It's something we can really build on. And we're mm-hmm. actually trying to make the um, the research available, both to, you know the report, obviously, and also the data available to researchers and our partner organizations. So we're looking for ways to host that and make it a bit widely available. There you go. Open data, people. Come on. Um, it's great. So... I'm going to transition us over here then to the lightning round, unless there's anything final you'd like to share about the report. Yes, please read it. It's at US, uh, www.secularsurvey.org. So www.secularsurvey.org. And please also do the action alert there and send it to your um, you know, state and federal representatives so that they know that there's non-religious people living in their communities. Okay, and I guess you'll keep us, you'll get to let us know if there's another uh, survey that you want us to complete at some point here down Absolutely. the line. We'll try to share it around, and we'll we'll of course put the uh, the current results in the show notes and everything. Um, so, okay, time for our lightning round. So, okay. uh, for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a series of things. Going to give you a list. You're going to tell me are these things real or not real. Those are your two choices. Okay. You don't get you don't get to hedge. You don't get to go one way or the other. It's just real or not real. Okay. okay. Um, are you ready? I am. Okay. I got to check. Do you believe that anything is real? Yes. Okay. Let's find out what's real. Uh, is the external world real? Yes. Are colors real? No. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Hmm. Uh, yes. Free will? Yes-ish. Selves? What'd you say? Selves or persons? Uh, no, not really, no. Genders? No. Races? No. Species? No. Morality? Not really. Rights? No. Knowledge? Yes. Gods or God? No. Society? Uh, I would say yes. Numbers? No. Answerable question. Um, <laughs> no. I would like to direct you to some Platonists who would no, say otherwise. No, no. I'll say no. No, okay. Fictional characters? Yes. Holes, as in a hole in the ground? I'm being completely inconsistent with my results. And as you go through this list, I recognize. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the torture. Yes, that's the way this yeah, works. Yeah, <laughs> really. Uh, are holes real? Mm. I mean, yes. Okay. Chairs? Yes. Sandwiches? Yes. Science? No. Natural laws? No. Beauty? No. Causality? No. And then finally, dharmas. I didn't get that one. Dharmas, it's a... it's a Buddhist thing. It's a small, you know, little bits of uh, atoms, uh, monads, however we want to 
the little um, part the particles no, the world is made of. Not, yeah. not as familiar with that, but I would say no. Okay, that's fine. It's mostly one to catch the Buddhist to say no to everything else. That's why it's there at the end. And a lot of folks are like, no idea. And then the Buddhists are like, yes, that's the one. You found it. Um, yeah, I feel like if you gave me that list again, I would pick different answers too. So I, I'm not... I pick different answers almost every time I think about it, actually. So <laughs> yeah, because uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways to think about realness. Um, yeah. And, yeah. No, I'm glad that halfway through you had the the existential crisis of realizing the inconsistency of this word. Um, that was that was beautifully done. I appreciate it. How are you feeling? I feel good. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm glad that that uh, psychologically not too much was riding on that for you. Some folks some folks struggle at the end. They feel a little. Um, oh, I've studied unmoored. a lot of philosophy, so no, I'm I'm able to take that. <laughs> okay. Just, great. Uh, the question is, you know. It'd be different if I could set forth the standard of realness prior to you start asking the question. So if you'd ask mm-hmm, me what I mm-hmm. think realness is, and then you start asking me, I'd be able to provide a more, probably more consistent answer rather than just starting off and trying to sort of quixotically guess, you know, redefine as we go along through the answers. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, though I think it's interesting that your mind didn't just settle on a definition of the concept of real at the beginning and then check, go go down the list. That instead it it started to revise its definition when presented with different cri- different options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's it a weird mind that context. So yeah, I, no, I I absolutely understand the the problem of um uh that there is no one version of real. That's what we've we've all come to horribly learn as we've uh, been playing this game with all of our guests. Right, right, right. I think we could have a really interesting discussion on each of those items too. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and what we've discovered is that for most philosophers, they never have to answer the whole list, right? You're always focused on one tiny part of it. And so there's less emphasis on the fact that when you look at the whole list, you start to see glaring inconsistencies. Right. Well, thank thank you so much, Allison. This has been uh, a really fascinating dive into some information. And I will want to, of course, hear more about any future surveys and be happy to share those around to folks. Do you want to give the, the address one more time for the current survey? Sure. It's www.secularsurvey.org. Check it out. Um, it's called Reality Check, Being Non-Religious in America. And Twitter handle of any sort for? Uh, I think it's at American Atheist, okay. I believe. I'm not a, a Twitterer, so I don't. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. It's not really my area of expertise. But, it doesn't um, matter because all this, all the youngins are on Instagram now anyway. So, oh, um, I've never even I seen it's... Instagram. That's <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. I don't, I'm not enough into the visual medium to be an effective Instagrammer. Well, I okay. appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. And good luck um, with whatever pushback y'all get. I'll be curious to see um, if anybody uh, is resistant to this information or if they just politely ignore it. I appreciate it. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. I'd like to thank some new patrons and some returning patrons. Thanks to Osmium, Lost Remote Control, Theo, Fweth, Full Name, Stephen McKendry, and we're still getting paid, so making sure you are too. That's a really touching sentiment. Uh, thanks also to Jonathan Yance Jones for increasing his pledge. Um, and as always, I must thank our top patrons at the $20 tier level. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Not everyone, not, oh, sorry, now everyone knows about Camp Quest. Check out blacknonbelievers.com. Strong suggestion. Uh, Chad T. 
Brenda Goodman and Jesse Urbinowitz. And at our top tier evil cult leader levels, we've got our longtime friend Dave Maslich. And our mystery patron has revealed himself to be the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon. So I imagine he's riddled with phlebitis, and we're happy to have him here. Uh, thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast app you use, though especially iTunes helps a lot. Uh, follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content, which I promise is returning now that I've finished moving. Um, and most importantly, in these trying times especially, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. Oh.